Well, okay, let's uh, get to Esther. We don't have a lot of time, so uh, I'll try to keep this thing moving. But when you come to a book in the Bible, you should always ask one question. Where is it in the Bible? There's lots of ways of answering that question, uh, but here is how I want to answer it this evening with regard to Esther. So I'm going to ascend the steps in order to do this, to be a physical, visible demonstration. Let's start with five movements, okay? Movement number one, eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in eternity. Very happy, absolutely in love with each other, didn't need to be anything. Eternity past. Right, secondly, creation. They decided to create a world that they didn't need to make. And ultimately to create human beings made in their image. And it was all very good. The fall. Now comes the crafty serpent, Satan, in other words, with a scheme. The scheme is to get human beings made in the image of God to side with him against God. Am I on? Hello. I forgot to press a button. Uh, so, um, third point is the fall. And human beings rebel against God and side with Satan, and that is very bad because sin and death comes into the world. We're in Genesis kind of chapter 3 territory now, if you want to know. And then in Genesis 3.15, you have a foundational promise which starts what's called salvation history. I'll read it to you. You know it well. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head uh, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent crusher will come hostile to Satan, hostile to evil, for God, and deal with the whole problem. This is salvation history. From, Reve from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, now all the way through the Old Testament, hello, hope we don't fall off, come to Jesus in all his saving career, all his saving career, the Spirit then comes from Jesus, the church goes out to the nations, out to the nations, uh, uh, people are saved by God, including you and me, if you are. Hello? And then it finishes, fifth movement, with new creation. Revelation 21, 22. Although new creation does, does appear in salvation history from time to time. Okay? Can't put it all in Revelation 21, 22. There you go. So where's Esther? Well, Esther's in the Old Testament part of the Bible, quite correct. But it's in salvation history, isn't it? God is working out his salvation. And Esther is part of that. And maybe just one point as I, before I stand down. Jesus read Esther. And it was important to him, it was important to him to strengthen him to go to a cross to save you and me. Okay, that's where Esther is. There could be other answers to the question, but I'm not giving them. That will come with others. 
So where is God? That's a question that often faces us, doesn't it? Why did God allow that? Why didn't God stop this? You're maybe younger in the room. You've never asked the question yet. Well, I have to say to you, without putting pressure on you, you're going to ask the question one day, because sometimes life is unfair, sometimes things are unjust, and things don't just work out the way we think they should. And sometimes, when we're following God, if we're, we are, and doing what He says, it still doesn't always work out well. So, where is God? What is He doing? Where is He in the earthquake? Where is He in your anguished problem that you maybe have having in your life now? Where is He? Well, this very old story, set in Susa, in Persia, now Iran, amongst Jews who were in exile, they show us that it's not a new question. You get this sometimes, don't you? Oh, that, you get a, a, a quiz question, and you know, it's from you know, 2000, the year 2000, then somebody will say, oh, that's very old, isn't it? It's only 22 years ago, 23. And the problem when we ditch history, young people in particular, when we ditch history, we end up with a problem. We think all the issues that we're experiencing are new issues, and they're not. If you learn to drive a car, and maybe you do drive a car, uh, as I do, well, you've got to look out the front because you need to see where you're going. Don't look at the side. I get told off for looking at the side. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, keep your eyes on the road. But you need a rear mirror, don't you? Because you need to know what's behind you. And so salvation history forces us to look behind us. And this fascinating story is so structured that it shows us that God is able to save even when he appears that he's not doing anything at all. I'll say it again. If you don't remember anything else, this is what Esther is essentially all about. It's not just a personal opinion. Read the book. God is able to save even when it appears as if he's doing nothing. Salvation history is always being worked out, which is why we started with where we started. Three things to say this evening, all right? Number one, the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. God is not mentioned in the book once, and yet the Bible is a book full of God and from God. But God is always working to save his people. And so the book of Esther invites you and me to read the story and find out, as we read the story, that God is actually present even when he's not mentioned. Now, in salvation history, sometimes it was very obvious that God was there. 
You know, you think of Moses at the burning bush. Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The ten plagues in Egypt. Well, it's pretty obvious too, isn't it? The crossing of the Red Sea. Wouldn't you like to have been there? I think I would have liked to have been there. Mind you being a bit scared, but nonetheless. And I wouldn't have minded the song they sung afterwards in Exodus 15. The song of Moses about God and who is like our God. Think of a million people thundering that one out in the desert. It's obvious sometimes that God is present. But in the story of Esther, although it's got lots of drama, if you read it, go home and read it a few times this week. It'd be good for you to do that. It's easy to read. It is a drama, but there's no obvious miracle in it. The sovereign Lord, who rules forever, saves even though he doesn't show himself miraculously. He's in charge of everything. It's his, we call a big word, it's a big word, providence. Providence simply means the Lord will see to it. There you go. That's easy. The Lord will see to it. Now, if you came to me and said, Morris, I've got an issue, and I said, I will see to it, well, you might have a problem. Because I'm not always the most reliable person to see to it. And I might miss the detail that I need to see. But not the Lord. The Lord sees to it. He's in control of all the big things. I'll say that in a minute. And he's also got all the details sorted. So providence simply means this. The Lord will see to it. You've got a whole book in Esther that tells you that. We see him in the pivotal moment as an example in chapter 6, which is why I got rich to read it. The king has a sleepless night just after Haman has built his gallows. Gallows to put Mordecai the Jew on. <laughs> Going to hang him from 75 feet. But the king can't sleep. God caused the king not to sleep. And when you're full of your own greatness, well, what do you want to hear when you're full of your own greatness? Well, you want to hear about yourself, don't you? So he gets the historical records out and gets them read to him. Why can't he read them himself, the lazy guy? The book of records is brought out. The same book of records that is mentioned in chapter 2 where Mordecai, Mordecai has brought a report that the king is being threatened with assassination. And the king is saved, and the report is noted, but nothing, nothing has been done to honor Mordecai. Oh, nothing has been done. What shall we do? Who could we ask about honoring uh, honoring Mordecai, well, it's, it just happens. <laughs> it's great, this, isn't it? It's a great story, you know. Haman is arriving in court to ask the king for Mordecai's uh, life. Can I put Mordecai, the Jew, on my gallows? <laughs> and, of course, the king asks Haman, what 
can be done to the man I, the king wants to honor. And of course, when you're full of your own greatness, there's only one answer to that question. Well, it's got to be me. <laughs> oh, you could almost hear God chuckling at this point, couldn't you? That's not in the text. And so out Haman gives the whole, the whole works. And so Mordecai is the one chosen to go around the whole of the city on an important horse, and Haman's leading the horse. The Lord will see to it. Sometimes you watch a murder story, don't you? And you often work, try to work out who did it. And I'm always right. Very rarely, I have to tell you. Sometimes we're told who the murderer is and watch how it happened. That's here. We're told really all about the story and how it's going to work out. And we know who's doing it. It's God himself. God did the saving, and look how he did it. God using small, ordinary, needy people who respond in obedient faith to him, like Mordecai and Esther. God even using evil people like Haman, doing their bad stuff. God even used them to save his people. Yet it all results because of his saving purpose, winning. Do you hear that? We've got to stop for a moment. The Lord is seeing to it, my friends. God may appear absent from our lives. He may appear absent from our church life. He may appear absent from our world. But that is not the truth. God is seeing to it, and his purpose will win. I think we all need that truth, don't we? From the youngest in the room to the oldest. The hiddenness of God. Secondly, speeding on, quarter past seven. Part the apparent aloneness of God's people. The apparent aloneness of God's people. The early chapters of the book could give the impression that God's people are Ki. And then he widens it as he guns for the Jewish people, influencing the king to pass a law guaranteeing their annihilation a legally binding law over 127 provinces. Specific evil against Haman to Mordecai. General evil, a bad law being passed to exterminate the people of God. And how does that evil law fit into God's purpose with, God, with regard to God's people? If you're alive at this time and you're a Jew, now some of the Jews have been going back to, the, to their land, and a temple is slowly going to get rebuilt as, as the walls are getting rebuilt. So they know something of that which is going on. But now here's an evil law. How does it fit in to the purposes of God? And when we face those times, and it's difficult to make sense out of it, it inevitably brings fear. David Paulison says that uh, there are true contrib contributing factors with regard to fear. Number one, 
the world is a threatening world and you can't do anything about it. You can try to control as much as you can, but you can't control other people, can you? Have you, have you tried? <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do, is it? Have you tried to control events? Not an easy thing to do either. Control trends? So, the world is threatening. This is why we feel fear. But there's a second thing Paulinson mentions. There's a lie that gets sown in the fear. And it's, if there's the hiddenness of God in the book, there is the hiddenness of Satan in the book too, isn't there? Evil is present and working. And this is the lie that gets sown when we're, on, we're in the place of fear, often anyway. You're on your own, and God is not present. And if he is present, he's useless, or he's bad. And I say to you, my friends, and I want you to understand this, from the youngest to the oldest, no one is the exception, Satan doesn't look at ages and give us a miss. Satan will sow that lie as an absolute truth into our heads. God has abandoned you, and his promises are empty, useless lies. Now, he gives the following quote about Satan. Satan destroys people in two ways. One is by misery and suffering, making us think that there is no good God worth trusting. The other is by pleasure and prosperity, making us think that we have all we need, so God is a practical irrelevance. By misery and suffering, God is not good, and He's not worth trusting. Or pleasure and prosperity, we've got all we need, we don't need God, the odd prayer, but basically God is on the sidelines. The hiddenness of Satan. That's why we must see the events of Esther and our personal lives and set them into God's big saving picture. It's why we started where we did. Get caught up in the details of Esther and forget about salvation history working itself out, then we are going to go wrong in thinking through Esther and what she's going to say to us in the coming weeks. And when we set Esther into salvation history, then the promises really take on great power. I am with you always, says Jesus, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13, or Ephesians 6, stand firm and be strong. Well, how can you do that? Well, you take Esther, you put it into salvation history, and you say, the God of salvation history worked it out in Esther. The Lord saw to it. You've got to take that with you, haven't you? To school, to college, to work. Because... 
Sometimes I'm baffled about God. I don't know about you. And when I'm baffled about God, a sense of panic and desperation grips my soul. And I need to reset. That's the word, isn't it, now? See, I am engaging with culture a bit. Not too much. Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I'm trying to quote all the good people. Uh, Hear what he had to say. I believe it is a shallow experience that makes a people always confident of what they are and where they are in just merely human terms. For there are terrible times of trouble that make even the most confident child of God hardly know whether he or she is on his head or on his heels. So Esther is written so that we can deal with a lie. God is with us. God is working it out. We may not be able to see it, but he's done it in the past, and he hasn't changed now. We are apparently alone, but it's only apparently. Thirdly and finally, we're just about there. It's the longest point, mind you. I just want to depress you a bit more. The the faithfulness of God in reversing the situation. The faithfulness of God in reversing the situation. It's the genius of the book. The story begins with a dark, threatening situation for the Jewish people. There is a law now passed to exterminate them that cannot be reversed. And yet it is surprisingly reversed. The Jews might have said, well, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Well, God said, well, I did. I'm ahead of the game. The small-scale reversal between Mordecai and Haman, which we've just read about, is repeated on the large scale between the evil law and the Jews, and the Jews are victorious, and they celebrate by the end of the book. The book can be built around three feasts. The king's feast sees Queen Vashti replaced by Esther. God has moved here, though he doesn't say he has moved. He has replaced the queen by her refusal not to attend the king's feast as she was commanded. But can you see an agent of salvation called Esther is already in place? By chapter 2, another agent of salvation called Mordecai is also in place, or at least his name is, in a historical record book. God's ahead of the game, my friends. The second feasts are Queen Esther's private lunches in chapters 5 and 6, and they surround the pivotal point. The first meal is just a really lovely meal, and Haman runs home full of joy, though he's very annoyed with Mordecai who will not just bow to him at all. But he returns home, puffed in his pride and his greatness, and builds these gallows for Mordecai in chapter 5, and then it's the sleepless night, the honor parade, and the reversal has started. And it doesn't get stopped. And second feast then sees Haman arrested. On his own gallows he goes, God saw to it that evil Haman dies in the place of his own hatred. You may have had personal 
cruel injustice against you, which has not been rectified yet, and it looks like it never will. But it's okay. There's a day coming when the Son of God will come, and all specific evil ever done against you or me, particularly in the name of Jesus, will be rectified. That's good news, isn't it? The third feast sees the Jews rejoicing that they have defeated their enemies. The law is past allowing them to defend themselves, and the feast of Purim is created to remember this great story. What a great story it is. God's better story for human beings. But I think we have to tell it better than we do sometimes. I think we must soak ourselves in God and His power to save. And so I want to finish briefly by just taking us now to Jesus. Because if salvation history is, is real, Jesus emerges from, em, some, from salvation history. And he knew through Esther and maybe other Old Testament texts that his work on the cross was the greatest reversal of evil that has ever taken place. The saving career of Jesus, I just want to bullet point now and see, show you how that works. We're nearly done. The great reversal, which began really in eternity past, if we really want to be pedantic about it all, comes to the reality when the God-man steps into history as a baby. <laughs> the god Man steps into history. The Word becomes flesh. John never wore a barber jacket, I don't suppose. Or even a Helly Hansen, for that matter. But nonetheless, the God-man comes. The only time it ever happened. Guarantees that evil is going to be defeated. Because Genesis 3.15 already tells you that, doesn't it? Someone hostile to Satan has arrived. He's not part of the problem. He's the solution. The great reversal in the obedient life of Christ as he defeats Satan and all the temptations to forsake God it's a remarkable thing, his life, isn't it? A loving, obedient life that always centered on the Father and never, ever moved away. I can't do that for a day. He did it for a lifetime. What a great reversal that is. The great reversal in his miraculous work we see the beauty of the world that he will bring in when he returns, when people are totally healed of all illness, when evil is indeed routed. That's what those miracles are doing. They're not just showing that he's God, though that is true, but this is the beauty and the majesty of the world that he will bring in at the end. 
This is guaranteeing Revelation 21, 22. As the blind see, the great reversal in his miraculous work. The great reversal, of course, in his atoning death on the cross for your sin and my sin, where he just smashes Satan. Where our sin was paid for. Where the judgment of God was moved away from our lives. Where God now loves us forever, where we side with, with God against Satan. That's what the cross does. The great reversal in the resurrection as death is smashed. Isn't that good news? It is in an Egyptian section of a museum with dead bodies all around you. Happy the people who know that there has been a resurrection in the middle of history. Death is smashed. You're a young person, you're scared about death. So am I. I don't, I don't like the, <laughs> the prospect of dying, to be honest. But it's smashed. If I die, I go home to be with the Lord forever and forever. Went to the hospital when my mother died, sat round her bed. She was gone to be with the Lord. I could see her slippers under the bed, and I thought, well, she won't be needing them now. It's amazing what you think about, isn't it? And Paul, my brother, and myself, we read Revelation 21 and 22 around that bed. Yes, she'd gone, and we felt the pain of it. But death had been smashed. She was home. And when I go to see her grave occasionally, not very often, I don't feel a need to do that, but, uh, you know, I think, well, you're coming out of there, you'll rise again. And that gravestone that we've paid for is going to get smashed to bits. You've got to understand my humor. Death is smashed. It's good news, people. The great reversal because the Lord Jesus is the Lamb who is reigning victorious rightly right now over us. He's in charge of everything. The Bible describes it as a scroll of God's purposes in His hands. All God's purposes. All of them. Every single detail. It's good to know, isn't it? We can, we're safe. And finally, the great reversal when the warrior judge returns. The wicked are removed. And the redeemed people, you and me, are seen to be invincible. We are the only invincible people in the world. Yes, death will claim us and take us if Jesus doesn't return. But we never get eliminated. <laughs> there we will stand with the Lord Jesus in a new world, in a new creation, new bodies, sinless hearts, loving God perfectly, joyful relationships, happy place, holy place.
This is the truth you need, my friends, to be able to stand as a young person if you're going to follow Jesus, as an older person if you're going to follow Jesus. The Lord will see to it. When he's hidden, he's still there. When you're apparently alone, no, you're not. And he'll reverse it all. We'll sing in a minute uh, about the power of the cross, the darkest day. The Lord seeing to it. And we will sing these words, Oh, to see my name written in his wounds. I stand forgiven at his cross. So I'm going to lead you in prayer in a moment. I want you to trust your life now to the Lord of love. You may never have become a Christian. You're still not a follower of Jesus. I ask you this evening, why would you not trust your life, your death, your eternity to the Lord of love? Why wouldn't you do that? And if you have, as I have, then we can stand responsibly, can't we? And offer our lives afresh and trust our church life to the Lord of love. And the Lord will see to it all. Won't he? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, says Proverbs, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Take a moment, please. Maybe for the first time in your life, you're going to trust yourself to the Lord of love. Maybe for the millionth time, you're going to say, Lord, I entrust my little life to you. And now, Lord Jesus, we will take up our lips and sing the darkest day. The darkest day for you, and yet you paid for our lives. The most glorious day. The Word who became flesh allowed his flesh to be nailed to a cross to reverse all evil and its every intention to destroy us by deception. We entrust our lives to you. Here you are, Lord, little jar of clay that this one is. Here we are as a church, faced with decisions in the future, faced with things that will come our way and stuff that we don't even know will come our way. You will see to it. You will see to it. And Lord, if we are those who believe that, will we will responsibly entrust ourselves to you and obey what you say. And the likes of Steve and Vanessa as they make their way down to West Kilburn can co in the same confidence. We know how all this all ends. We know the end. 
Yes, we do. You're coming again, Lord Jesus. And no one will stop you. And then you will see to it. See to it that a new world comes in. And all evil goes. And good riddance to evil. In Jesus' name. Amen.